So I'm going to begin with a question this morning, um, and it, it may feel like a trick question. It's not really intended to be a trick question, but um, it seems to be a question that addresses so many of the conversations that I've been having and hearing lately, and just kind of a general attitude uh, about life in the moment. Okay, so the question is this, is the world a better place now than it used to be? Or are things getting worse? Like I said, it feels like a trick question. It's not intended to be. I'm trying to capture our sense of what is going on. In uh, this Tuesday morning at 10.30, I meet with a small group right over there where the potatoes are. Um, and we were talking this, uh, this past week, and somebody mentioned uh, that they used to have clothes that were made out of the material that their food came in. Uh, and I thought, thinking, well, say what you want about the world, but we're not wearing burlap sacks as clothes anymore, right? So, like, perspective, something to compare with, sometimes help us get a bigger picture of what's going on. Anyways, um, is the world a better place now than it used to be, or are things getting worse? Um, you might want to answer that question using your emotions or your reaction. Maybe you have a lens that you uh, are, are using to answer that um, and that's all well and good, but I want to, there's, there's a way that some people try to bring objectivity to that question. Sociologists, um, social scientists, um, people that I don't even know what their job title is, but they, they do studies uh, with objective levels of things that they can measure over time to evaluate the quality and just the abundance of life, right? So one of those things um, that have been measured over time and this is going to be kind of a heavy topic for a moment, um, is what's called the infant mortality rate. Did you know, as recently as 1990, which just feels like a couple days ago for some of us, right? It wasn't that long ago, but 32 years ago. But as recently as 1990, um, 9 million infants under the year of one age, under the age of one year old, died every year. 9 million infants under the age of one died every year. They didn't make it to their first birthday. By 2015, that number had been halved to about four and a half million. So in that little bit of time, they'd cut the rate of infant mortality of one-year-olds or less in half. Uh, at that same period, um, the rate, you know, deaths per 1,000 uh, used to be 65 deaths per every 1,000 and now it's 29. Now prior to 1990, like if you go back to the 1900s or before, so going way back, kind of, you know, prior to any of us, um, the rate of infant mortality would fluctuate kind of sporadically, widely, based off of a lot of external factors. It could be weather. Um, it could be uh, how well the harvest came in this year. It could be uh, a factor on what countries and what regions were at war, uh, what diseases were spreading uncontrolled. And so there could be a good year, um, and pre-1900, a good year was considered 200 deaths per thousand born. That's a Impossible just to even wrap my mind around that that was a good year. During, during a, a bad year, during when things were at its worst, this rate was just hard to get your mind wrapped around. Um, 
a majority of infants would die within a year. Um, there's pockets, these anthropologists, sociologists, these scientists doing research have found communities uh, that wouldn't name their children until they hit their first birthday. They wouldn't name their children until they hit their first birthday because they didn't want to develop an emotional attachment. They didn't want the, the naming to be like, you're part of the family now. And so there's pockets, these communities that wouldn't name their children until they were at least a year old. A child born in 1900 had a life expectancy of about 51 years. Do we have anybody over 51 years old in here this morning? <laughs> if you were born in 1900, 122 years ago, you would be on what's considered borrowed time. A child born today has an average life expectancy of nearly 80 years old. So despite the fact that the way we sense and feel things at times, despite the fact that there's a lot of bad news that comes our way, the world overall is more conducive to life than it's been before. In fact, if you look at people that study war and violence and poverty and starvation globally, we live in a world that is better shaped for human life to thrive than any other generation before. We live in a time that is the most peaceful and most accommodating to life flourishing than ever in human history. We live in a time where life is even better than our grandparents or our great-grandparents. Um, now, that's not to say there aren't genuine concerns. I'm not putting my head in the sand and saying everything's great. I'm not giving us permission to check out and say, oh, everything's wonderful, I don't need to worry about anything. And in fact, the, the trend is starting to turn a little bit. Life expectancy the last few years has actually declined for the first time in over a century. But things have been up and to the right for a long time when it comes to the quality of life, the things that allow life to flourish. Peace, stability, um, food, clean drinking water, health, uh, access to health care, those types of things that, that allow life to thrive been trending upwards. But if you were allowed to let your only perspective be shaped by uh, social media, cable news networks, um, these types of things um, that are trying to sell ads by getting your attention, uh, things that, that, that they make money by getting you to tune in or to click on something or to share something, to engage with something, um, They've discovered or they've known all along that fear sells. Keeping people afraid um, isn't necessarily the goal. The goal is to, to, to get people to click and engage and participate because they're afraid. Your engagement, your fear has been monetized. The more afraid, more anxious, the more worried we are about the world around us, the more other people make. People are getting absurdly wealthy off of this. Creating fear and anger and hate is actually a very lucrative business in our modern world. You may have heard people talk about an attention economy. The battle now today isn't real estate. It's not, um, you know, businesses taking over land. It's not businesses competing for the, the corner, the you know, the street corner in, in Main Street, downtown square. It's attention. Businesses are wanting our attention. 
And nothing gets our attention more than that which we're afraid of. And fear and anger and hate at times is a lucrative business. There's politicians and businesses with a vested interest in making us afraid, and that can motivate us. And all these messages, all these people, all these different sources that create fear and anxiety that are trying to get us worked up um, can shape a vision of the world we live in. Why do I bring this up? I'm not picking on any particular network. I'm not picking on any particular social media, any political person or party. It's not that. It's a larger thing I want to address this morning. The thing I want to talk about this morning is vision. Being able to see what is really going on. Because vision is important because it, it functions as a lens. This, this story of what is happening gives us the ability to interpret the events around us in a particular way. So vision gives us a lens to interpret what we are experiencing at the moment, but most importantly, vision is a glimpse into the future. And that glimpse into the future either offers us hope of what we want to come, or what we're waiting to come, or it causes us to spare fear of what is to come. But our vision of the future, our vision of what is happening, shapes how we respond to what we think is going on around us. So some of us might be inviting this dream that we have, this hope, to become a reality. We can't wait for the day where our hopes become realities. And other of us might be terrified that our nightmares, our fears, are coming true. And so some of us look forward to the future and others are terrified of it. And I think honestly, if, if we look internally and are honest with ourselves, it's probably a little bit of both for all of us. And so that's that, the context of which we enter into today's scripture, is talking about vision. What is happening? We go to Isaiah chapter 65 this morning. Um, we're going to read verses 17 through 24. Isaiah 65 gives us a vision that is drastically different than the vision that we are being asked to see today by pretty much everywhere we look. Isaiah gives us a different lens, a different way to interpret what is going on around us. So I invite you to open, uh, if you have your Bibles, Isaiah 65 verse 17, it'll be on the screen. Or if you have an app on your phone or whatever, feel free to use that as well. Or there's Bibles under the chairs um, if you want to use that. But Isaiah 65, 17 through 24. It says, For I am about to create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating, for I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy, and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but just a few days, or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth, and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the works of their hands. 
They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. But the serpent, its food shall be the dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would gather our minds, that they may be one with you. Open our ears that we may hear your word. Soften our hearts that they may receive your wisdom. Speak to us, for we, your servants, are listening. Amen. So starting out, a little bit of a downer, right? Nobody likes to talk about infant mortality rate. That's not a great way to start. They probably wouldn't teach that in preaching class. Um, Don't watch TED Talk and they'll, they'll lead off with a depressing topic like that. But sometimes it's important to name that which is in front of us. And, and that's what Isaiah is, is wrestling with here. Isaiah is, is written um, to a group of people, the descendants of Israel, people that were children of God's chosen people, right, who had been conquered and exiled. This part of Isaiah is written to people who had been defeated by an enemy army and taken from their homelands. He's writing to these people who had a memory of Jerusalem and the temple and all the things that happened there and God's goodness and God's promises, but that memory is starting to fade. They'd been removed from their homeland, the promised land, for long enough that the memories and the hopes of what used to be are just starting to fade away. Every generation that that comes along loses that collective memory a little bit. These people that Isaiah write to, their, their family homelands, were occupied by foreigners, foreign invaders, a military that came and took them out and put somebody else there. They didn't live in the homes that their families built. Somebody else occupied that land. They didn't get to eat the fruit of their family's vineyards. They were far from home and not able to get that fruit. The promised land, their family possessions, everything that God had given their people had been carved up as spoils in war. Kings and rulers grabbed a hold of what they wanted. The land of God had been plundered. In the promised land, when the people lived there, pregnancy and childbirth was a reminder of God's promise to Abraham. Your descendants will be like the stars in the sky or the the sand on the shore, right? There'll be too, too many to count, and every time one of God's chosen people was uh, adding a member to their family. Every time a new baby was born, they were reminded of that promise. That's how it was in the promised land. But Isaiah says in this passage, children born in exile, they're born into calamity. They're not born into the promised land. They're not born into the promise. They're born into exile. What is going on, God? In the promised land, labor, work that was done, with, was, it was done within the context of the covenant. Right? So God said, here's your land. I, I, I give you this land. Steward it well. Develop these resources. Care for one another. 
This is your land, steward it well. And the work that you do honors God, and it's part of this covenant agreement. Well, now they're in exile, and now they're laboring there. What's the point of the work? What's the goal? Who are we working for? This is who Isaiah is writing to. Exile didn't just mean that the Jewish people were having a bad couple of years, like they had some bad luck. Exile was an absolute disruption of their way of life to the point it was a disruption of what they understood their relationship to be with God. What does it mean if you're God's chosen people, but this promised land that God gave you is now ruled by somebody else? What does it say about your God if there's this other people who worship a violent, awful God comes in and conquers you, conquers your land, and kicks you out? What does that say about your God compared to their God? This was a theological crisis as much as it was a problem of geographic location, like where are we living now? What does it say about your God when your God's temple gets defiled and ransacked? The place where God dwells is knocked down, destroyed. It's not just a question of might and power. Oh, they were, had a better military than us. It's a question of who is our God and what is going to happen next. Ezekiel chapter 10 tells of a story of a vision of God's glory, God's presence leaving the temple. Could you imagine being part of a, a community, being part of a people whose defining identifier is that God dwells with us in this land? And the vision Ezekiel shares is this vision of God leaving the temple. Well, who are we if God is not with us? The temples were places where heaven and earth met. It was this, this collision of heavenly things and physical things. It was a physical place where God was present. And Ezekiel tells that God left the temple in Jerusalem. God has left. Will God come back? We are God's chosen people. We are God's children. We have this covenant with God that he's going to protect us and care for us and we are his people and now God is gone and we are scattered throughout the lands? Does God even care? What happens to us now? Again, this is more than just a disruption of, well, I used to be able to work where I wanted to work and live where I wanted to live. This is a theological crisis. Who is God? Who are we if God is not with us? And so Isaiah's vision that we just read a moment ago is an answer to those people's despair, concern, confusion. Isaiah writes in 65 um, to a people that were wondering how things had gone so wrong. How things could be in the future. Like, what happens next? How do we ever recover from this? And does our future have anything to do with this God who left and so we're going to look at one verse at a time here for, for a minute. I don't typically preach verse by verse, but I want to highlight some things as, as we look here. And so we're going to look at verse 17 here for a second. This is Isaiah 65, 17. He says, For I am about to create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. The first thing I want you to see is the second word, I. Right? Who's the I in this? 
It's God. God is still in the game. We, we saw it. We thought we saw him leave. Does our future have anything to do with God or not? Is God part of the plan or not? Has God abandoned us or not? And the second word here is I. God is still in the game. The hope for the future still starts with their God. And then the rest of that verse, it tells us that God isn't just going to make things a little bit better. He's not going to, you know, tweak a few dials, turn a few knobs, throw a fresh coat of paint on some stuff and call it good. This God who is still with you is going to build a new heavens and a new earth. Creation is going to be restarted from the beginning. God's promise is a vision of a future where there is new creation. Joy will replace despair. When people would want to cry out to God, God will answer them before they even finish their sentence. God will be so on the spot and knowing the needs that you won't even be able to cry out in prayer. God will answer prayers as we say them. The next verse I want to look at is verse 19. It says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem. This is still God speaking. God will rejoice in Jerusalem. Where? In Jerusalem. The hope is back in the promised land, right? This is still God's plan. He hasn't given up on the covenant. He hasn't abandoned the promised land. So we have the same God and we still have Jerusalem. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. You're still my people. Right? And I still take delight in them. No more shall the sounds of weeping be heard or the cry of distress. The new creation is going to be better than the old creation. Parents won't watch their children suffer. People who live to be a hundred will be considered too young to die. He says you'll actually be considered cursed. Oh, he only lived to be a (laughs) hundred. He must have really lived a poor life. Life will be abundant. Life will be plentiful. Right? This is the vision that God, through Isaiah, is giving to these people who had lost everything. Verse 21, the next one, says, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. That's kind of weird and awkward wording, but what it means is there's people that will enjoy the fruits of their own labor. There's not instability. They're not going to be overrun by people. You build something and then somebody more powerful comes along and takes it from you. You will live in the houses that you build. You will eat the fruits of the vines that you work. You won't be exploited. You won't be oppressed. You won't have things taken away from you. So God's in the game. It's going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to start with God's people again. And it's going to be better than it was before. War will be no more, Isaiah says. The effects of war will not be felt. There will be a long sustained peace in which the children of Israel will know peace and rest. You have to realize that before the exile, Israel had been in years of conflict. There was the Assyrian army before there was the Babylonian army. There was internal struggles. Israel became Israel and Judah. They split there was other nations that had an impact that Israel had known years, generations of conflict, instability, and war. And here God is saying, you will know war no more. There's going to be this long, sustained peace. 
and you can rest in God. So that's what Isaiah is saying to these people in exile who are going through this crisis. Who is God? What is God up to? And what does that have to do with us? And so in light of that, I have some questions for us today. Do we believe that God is still present in the world? Or has God left us here alone? Do we believe that God is at work in the world today? Do we believe that God is at work in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our schools, in our homes? Do you think God is at work in your families and your relationships? And if you say yes to that, if you say yes, God is at work in those places, what is it that we think God is doing? Do we believe, as some may suggest, that God is offering a type of hospice care to a dying world? Making it comfortable as we live out our last days before we escape? Or before it's all over? God's just tending to us, making us comfortable as the end nears? Or do we believe that God is in the business of renewing, restoring, and reconciling all things to himself? Do we see the end of creation story as being condemned, judged, and destroyed by the creator who created it? Or do we see God transforming, redeeming, and making holy once again this creation that he declared good, that creation that he loved so much that he sent his son to go and die for? Isaiah addresses a people who had seen their world implode, and he paints a picture of a God not far off, not disconnected, not defeated, not in hiding. But even in and through their current situations, God was present, and God was working towards their future, a new future. A new creation in which there was peace, in which evil had been defeated. And the people of God heard this vision. They heard Isaiah, and they began to have hope again. Right? So this vision that Isaiah gave, and like I said at the beginning, vision gives us perspective. It gives us a way to interpret what's going on around us. This vision Isaiah presents helped the people of God hope again. Instead of looking around and seeing all the things that had gone wrong, all the things that felt like God had abandoned, they began looking and seeing all the things at which God was at work. They started looking for the places where God was at work, even in the midst of exile, even in the midst of the difficulty. Some of the greatest Bible stories that you learn in Sunday school as a kid come from this time of exile. God was up to something, even in these terrible situations. They started looking for what God was doing, and they started seeing it. Instead of despair, they found hope. God hadn't given up on his people or his creation, but was right there, present with them, even in exile, in the middle of all of it. They found hope. We're just a few weeks away from starting the Advent season, which is the run-up to Christmas. Right? It's a season in the life of the church where we anticipate the arrival of Jesus. Well, Christmas is coming, baby Jesus is coming, and Advent is that anticipation that 
waiting. If you have little children, now's around the time of the year where they start saying, when's Christmas, right? Like, they're anticipating it as well. This is what Advent is. We enter into that season in two weeks. During Advent, we were going to read many scriptures that point to Jesus as the answer to all that hope, to fulfillment of all these promises. We're going to read scriptures in which we understand that Jesus is the way in which God does what God said he was going to do. And do you know where many of these promises, most of these promises are located? As we go into the Advent season, we're going to read scriptures from a few different places, but it's going to be heavy in one location. One book of the Bible is going to be forefront this year during the Advent season because all the promises of God that come true with Jesus are located in this one book. It's the book of Isaiah. Pastor Will read from Isaiah this morning in the scripture, preaching from it this morning, and all through the Advent season, we're going to look at different texts from the book of Isaiah. The coming of Jesus the Christ, the rightful king, the savior, is... As the Gospels and writings of the New Testament tell it, the fulfillment of this vision that Isaiah had. This vision that Isaiah cast in into the existence, which God makes a new creation. The fulfillment of that is actually Jesus. That's what our Christmas story is all about. The hopes of God rebuilding something, of restarting, of, of fulfilling this promise. Exile destroyed everything. It wasn't as God intended it to be, but Advent is the expectation, the anticipation of God's work. And Christmas is the fulfillment of all those promises in Jesus. Jesus begins his ministry by reading a scroll. He goes to the synagogue. He picks up a scroll. Does anybody know what book the scroll contained? <laughs> Isaiah. He reads from Isaiah 61, the scroll says, um, this has been fulfilled. He, well, before he says that, he says the captives will be set free. The debts have been forgiven, right? Familiar with that text. Jesus reads this Isaiah 61 scroll, and he talks about a time that will come where debts are forgiven. Everything will be made new. Prisoners, captives set free. Everything will be set right. And then Jesus says, it has been fulfilled today. <laughs> in your hearing. The gospel authors, each in their own ways, point to Jesus, tell us that Jesus, his story and his life is the fulfillment of God's promises. One of Jesus' last statements on the cross, we're not jumping to Easter, but this is relevant. One of the last things Jesus says on the cross is, It is finished. Well, what is finished? His life? That's well, over. His suffering? I'm about to die. It's about to be over soon. What is finished? What was finished was his mission to fulfill the promises of God in redeeming and restoring creation. The promises that God had made to his people in their darkest days had been fulfilled Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, new creation has come. <laughs> Sometimes we get the idea that the Bible is this book about a mystical place called heaven and it's a place that's far off and 
removed from earth and the things of everyday life. But the Bible is really a different kind of story than that. The Bible, in its whole representation from Genesis to Revelation, is a, is a story about a God whose beloved creation is broken and hurting. This creation, this creation that this God loves, is not operating the way that this God intended it to. The good things that this God created have been corrupted and destroyed and broken. And they're being used in a way, and they're existing in a way that God never intended them to be. And so when this God looks at his creation, he grieves. And the Bible is the story of this creator God working through a unique and specific tribe of people called the children of God, the children of Abraham, Israel. He works through that group of people, this tribe, in order to make things on earth as they should be, as God intended them to be to make things on earth as they are in heaven, to quote a prayer that Jesus taught his followers. God's plan for the earth is renewal of all things, and as Christians, this is our hope in Christ. Resurrection, right? From death, new life. Death doesn't get the final word. Darkness doesn't consume the light. New light, new life comes out of the darkness, out of the death. Resurrection is the hope, and God's not going to bring his children back into a place that he has neglected and not cared for. He's not going to send his people back from exile to a, a garbage dump, and he's not going to call his children back to new life and have them live in a garbage dump there either that's controlled by evil. Rather, the earth will be renewed and redeemed. This is the promises of Scripture. Revelation, the last book in the Bible, concludes with all the earth being one large city, a garden city. The new garden city is supposed to remind us of the original garden in Eden. The story ends with everything on earth being exactly how God intended it to be all along. If you read the last few chapters of Revelation, that's what you get. Everything has been set right. Not someplace far off, but here. God, the culmination of all of God's work on earth is the city in which everything is how God intends it to be. What a promise, what a hope to have, is it not? I grew up in a church from the time I was born. Years of Sunday school, children's church, youth group, Sunday morning services, Sunday evening services, Wednesday night Bible study, prayer meetings, Bible studies, all of that, right? And if someone would have asked me not that long ago, what the story of the Bible is, I wouldn't have been able to tell you what I just told you. I wouldn't have been able to answer it or articulate it the way that I just did. And I don't know if that was because nobody ever told me this was the story of God rescuing and redeeming his creation, or if maybe I was just so caught up in my part in it. Well, do I get to go to heaven when I die? Like, my perspective was so focused on myself that I didn't see that I was part of a bigger story. So I don't know, I'm not trying to blame anybody else, it's probably my fault, I probably missed it. But either way, I look back now and I realize I was missing the forest for the trees. So what does that have to do with our series about being disciples who follow Jesus, about disciples who make disciples? What does all that have to do with that? Well, my guess is that you know at least one person 
who's been caught up in the despair of our present world. My guess is that you know at least one person who is feeling that there's no hope, that this is all just going to end in a miserable pile. Despite the fact that we live uh, in a time where there's less war and violence, the most peaceful time in human history, we see evidence every day that things are getting worse and worse. Despite the fact that God is not absent, you might know someone who's consumed with the pessimism of the modern age. And when I mean modern age, I don't mean like today. I mean modern age, like post-enlightenment. The way that our culture looks at things. The pessimism of the modern age says there's no God. We're on our own. Look around you. We've got to figure this out. The best that things will be will be whatever we can together build. And the worst is going to be the worst of all of of us put together. And so the pessimism of the modern age says there is no God. Or if there is a God, it's obvious that the God that does exist doesn't really care about us. This is the modern age's perspective on God. The reality is, if you cling to what Isaiah says in his message to these exiles, is that God is at work. I asked you a moment ago, do you believe that God is at work? And I got some head nods and some people saying yes. We believe that God is at work in our communities, in our homes, in our schools, in our families, in our relationships. We believe that God is at work and there are people who don't see it. God is at work in their own lives in their own families, in their own places of employment, in their own neighborhoods, in their own communities. God is at work there, and they don't see it. What a tragedy. As a pastor, this is probably the the thing that weighs heaviest on my heart, is that God is at work. It's not that we have to figure out how to get God to come and help us. God is at work here in our midst, and we're attuned to the things of this world The question we ask is, what is going wrong, not where is God at work? The focus can become finding evidence that not everything is God would want it to be, and using that to tell the story of creation. Creation is destined to die, and the best thing we can do is escape. But in in the midst of all that, do you think a message that God isn't gone, that God is present here at work making things new would be good news to anyone you know? Do you think anybody that you know could benefit, I keep bumping into that, would benefit from the message that God is present, he has not abandoned you, he has not forgotten you, he is present and at work, and if you look for it, you will see it. Do you think that's good news to anybody you know? Do you think a reminder that the story doesn't end in a torturous and terrible destruction of all creation, but rather the story has a different trajectory, it has a different conclusion, do you think that could be good news to anyone? Do you think helping people see how God's grace and mercy is present in their own lives is very real in this very moment would be a message worth telling someone? Do you know anyone who would like to hear a story that says violence, abuse, conflict is coming to an end and it's going to be replaced with peace and love and healing. Do you know anybody that would like to hear that story? 
Do you know anyone who might long to hear of a time where there's no more tears of pain, only tears of joy and celebration? Do you know anyone who might need to hear Isaiah's vision of the future and grab a hold of it, that hope of what, it's, what it brings? And so the invitation for all of us today is to learn to share this vision with others, to become Isaiah's in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our families, to share this vision. God is at work and present. He has not forgotten or abandoned us. The invitation is to learn to share that vision with others so that they too may know the hope that God is at work around them. But before we can share it, we must know it. I said a few moments ago that I would not have been able to tell this story this way a few years ago. Before we can share it, we must know this story. Learn the scriptures and let them be a guide. Grab a hold of the narrative of this loving creator who is not going to sit back and let his creation exist in brokenness and darkness and suffering any longer. So before we share it, we must know it. But before we share it, we have to believe it. Can we let go of the fear and despair that this world wants us to grab a hold of? Can we let go of this fear and despair of the world that seems to control everything from family dynamics to national and global politics? Are we able to put our trust in this God who says, I am with you? And before we share it, we can see how we fit into the story. This is God's story. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end, and we are just one character amongst many in this story. Can we find our place in that story? As we near the end of our discipleship sermon series, as we begin to prepare ourselves for Advent and then Christmas, it's a great time to spend sometime wrestling with our fears. Any sense of hopelessness, despair we might feel at the moment. It's a good time to identify them. I mean, if you're a list maker, make a list of all the things you're afraid of. I have a list open on my computer right now of all the things I'm anxious about. Name it. And then focus anew on the hope that we have in the coming Christ. How is God at work in those very situations? The coming king, the rightful king, the one who is going to save and rescue and put everything as it should be is coming. <laughs> Can we put our hope in that? So let's invite others to the, hear this vision. Let's share this vision Isaiah has with others that God is at work in our midst. I'm going to uh, close the message with a time of prayer and invite the worship team to come and lead us in a time of response.